I'm George Lizos, spiritual teacher, psychic killer, and number one best-selling author. Growing up in a small and Christian community, I was judged and rejected for being gay and different. After a futile two-year attempt to change who I was born to be, I called myself a human abomination and almost took my own life. Fortunately, in my darkest moment, I saw the light and ventured on a healing journey of love, forgiveness, and spiritual awakening. Yet my dating life since hasn't always been all roses and rainbows, and my past dramas and traumas have definitely kept things spicy. Fast forward past many awkward dates and disappointing sex, I created Can't Host to challenge toxic gay stereotypes, explore the complex dynamics of gay sex and relationships, and create opportunities for healing and growth. If you're a gay guy seeking more joy, freedom, and authenticity in your sex, life, and relationships, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Can't Host. I'm your host, George Lizos, and in this week's episode of the podcast, we're talking about conversion therapy. Specifically, I have with me Lucas Wilson, who went to conversion therapy and he shares his experience with us. Let me read you a little bit about Lucas. Dr. Lucas Wilson is a Justice, Equity and Transformation Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Calgary. He holds graduate degrees from McMaster University, Vanderbilt University and Florida Atlantic University. His current research focuses on homophobia, evangelicalism and Christian fundamentalism and he's currently putting together an edited collection of conversion therapy narratives as told by conversion therapy survivors. And you also may have seen him competing on Netflix's Cook at All Costs Season 1 Episode 7. This was such an interesting episode for me because even though I personally never went to conversion therapy, I related to a lot of the things that Lucas shared in this episode because I felt like I put myself through conversion therapy. And what Lucas shared as well is that a lot of the times conversion therapy can also be thought as conversion practices because even if we don't go to an external place that puts us through a plan of changing our sexuality essentially, we can put ourselves through that self-masochism as well. And that's certainly something that I did when I was growing up. So in this episode, Lucas shares about his journey with evangelical Christianism, how he got into it, how that affected the way he viewed himself and his sexuality, how his parents and the family situation at home influenced his repression of who he was and his sexuality, how he ended up going to conversion therapy and the whole story of what he did, what he had to go through, how that program works and the different levels and ways through which conversion therapy works, how he managed to get out, how he have reconciled or not his faith with his homosexuality, and what his vision for the future is. It's such a fascinating episode and I know you'll find many different aspects of it that relate to your current life as well, whether you went to conversion therapy or not, because we all go through very similar experiences when it comes to the way we perceive ourselves growing up gay or queer. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast and come to Instagram and let us know what you thought about it. My handle is at George Lizos and you can find all of Lucas's links in the show notes of the episode. Enjoy this episode with Lucas Wilson. Hey Lucas, how are you? I'm well, George. How are you? 
I am well. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. And this is a topic I've wanted to touch on for a while, but I've never had an experience with it. I didn't even know where to approach it from. So I'm very happy that I I came up upon your work and what you advocate essentially and what you've been through your story. And I'm excited to get there. We're going to talk about your experience going through conversion therapy. But before we get into the nitty gritty of that experience, let's start chronologically from the beginning. When did you realize you were gay? I think it was July 4th, 1990, which was the day I was born. No, uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, very early, right? Like I, I, I knew from a very young age that I liked uh, men, guys, you know, and I sort of had to, to, to stuff that down to, to repress that for a very long time because I lived in a family where I knew that wouldn't be accepted. And I knew that my, my, although my dad would have been like a-okay with it. My dad was this, you know, hippity dippity, uh, vegetarian record store owner in downtown Toronto kind of guy. Uh, I knew that my mom was not going to be all that open to me being queer. And so that was communicated, you know, a number of ways to me, you know, whether it be offhand comments or her saying things like, thank God she had only had straight children. And, you know, that the way that she crit criticized, you know, the queer community when we'd see them in representations on the news or, you know, when we were passing downtown Toronto and she's, you know, it was the, maybe it was the weekend of, of pride and her talking about the pride parade and how disgusting it was, you know, these, these little moments and these little uh, comments add up over time. And of course you take notice and you take stock and uh, you know that it's not okay to talk about you, you know, if you're a queer kid uh, being queer uh, in a family like that. So I knew pretty young that I, I was not going to be coming out to my mom anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. And those, those subtle comments, those passive aggressive comments, essentially there, they are so hurtful and they shape the way you perceive your family will accept you or not. Cause I remember like, cause you're, you're hyper vigilant and hyper alert of whatever they say and how they react around gay stuff when you're a teenager, when you're a kid. And I remember seeing my dad and, and the way he reacted to like gay people or how he talked about it at the time. And then as a result of, of seeing the way he was repulsed essentially by gays when I was younger, it ended up me being in the closet up until I was 25 years old. So I only came out to my dad when I was 25 and to my mom when I was 17. So quite big of a difference there. And when I had told him, you know what, he was like, why didn't you tell me I would have accepted you? I'm like, how could I have done that when I heard you repeatedly bash on gay people my entire life? And there comes the gaslighting. I never did that. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm so hyper alert. Even if you don't say something, a little comment that's passive aggressive or a look or, or, or a grimace like it completely shapes your perspective of your parents. And they don't get that because they don't, they're, they're not so hyper alert. They don't notice and memorize every single phase they do or every single word they utter, right? Yeah, it's it's funny. I my dad passed away when I was when I was in high school, but as for my mom, I didn't come out with to my mom until I was 25. So we have I suppose that that uh, shared experience, but for me when I when I did come out eventually, it you know, it sounds like your dad rethought his his views whereas my mom, when I came out to her, she she doubled down in them, right? Like all of a sudden it became even more real for her that 
you know, that she had a gay son. Well, it became real to her that she had a gay son, even though she should have known, like, from a very young age that I was gay. Like, I was in, like, dance. I was in figure skating. I watched a lot of HGTV, you know, that kind of stuff. The writing was on the wall, um, but she somehow didn't know. And so she eventually did come around, like, down the road, like, years later. But, I mean, even still, it's like, you know... Uh, when you hear comments like that, why didn't you tell me that, you know, it, it, that rings true for other people in my life who who made comments like that. And you're like, well, I wonder why, because maybe, you know, you did this, 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 and this, 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 that's maybe why I didn't come out. Right. And it's, it's funny how people are so ignorant of, of how they come across and those little comments. And in some cases, big comments that they make, we of course take notice of these things, right. As, of as course. Yeah. And in your own experience, was your mom the biggest influencing factor in you fearing coming out as gay or fearing being gay in the first place? Or were you in a religious community as well? That's a, a fab question. I think that in large part, it was my mom. Me staying in the closet was compounded by my burgeoning sort of like religious identity. And so in grade nine, which of, you know, I knew I was gay from much at a young, at a much younger age, but in grade nine, that's when I became religious for the first time. Like we had gone to church when I was little, we had gone to, you know, Sunday school here and then church here, like on and off for a few years. But by and large, by the time I was in about grade two or three, we weren't going to the church. My dad wasn't religious. My mom at best was like haunted by her religious demons. She wasn't necessarily, you know, a, a practicing Christian as far as I knew. And so by the time I got to grade nine, I, I got back involved in the church, which is its own story. And when I was involved in the church, that was around the same time that I was not just recognizing that I like guys, but really sort of knowing that I'm really not attracted to girls at all. And I, for a long time, <laughs> I had convinced myself that I was or that I was interested in, in gals, though I wasn't. And this is something that I think over the years, you know, once I went to, to conversion therapy and all this kind of stuff, I was again trying to convince myself I like girls. But it, it was even more obvious by the time I was in high school that I didn't. Like I was very, very gay. <laughs> and that was that. And so I think that for me, I was always a mama's boy. I was always trying to, you know, please her in a lot of ways. And again, by the time I was in high school, this is when I, I started to find, you know, a religious identity. I don't need more like, you know, spoiler alert, I'm no longer religious. But at the time, I certainly was. And I think that that religiosity impacted me staying in the closet and reinforced that closet door staying very tightly shut <laughs> because I knew that within the evangelical tradition that I, I found myself, homosexuality, queerness was not a possibility if one wanted to remain within that community. So it's this very it's very much this binary sort of opposition or this like dichotomy that's set up for you. You have to either choose God or choose yourself and it's oftentimes framed as you embracing your queer identity as choosing yourself which is a, a very pejorative or a negative thing within that community so i thought to myself well i certainly i can't give up god so i must have to therefore uh give up myself or reject myself reject my queerness in favor of a god who apparently hates any and all queers <laughs> yeah that's actually very similar to my story as well in the sense that i, I also became very religious when i was in in high school and in Cyprus, Christianity is basically Orthodox Christianity, which, I mean, it's pretty extreme as well when you compare it to evangelical Christianity too, in the sense that they believe they have the right way of honoring God <laughs> and that's it and nothing else. So as a result of my own religion, I'm like, you know what, I cannot accept this. Otherwise I'm going to go to hell, blah, 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 blah. And I'm going to come to the question here because although I didn't go to conversion therapy, I 
it was like I put myself through conversion therapy because what I did with myself, I started bargaining with God. <laughs> I'm like, please make me straight and I'm going to do this so I can be straight and you're going to help me and guide me or I'm going to give that time up to be uh, to, to be turned straight, etc. And what I did in that fucked up bargaining situation that I put myself in, I essentially tried to monitor the way I walked, the way I talked, the way I, my mannerisms, my thoughts even. I forced myself to fantasize about girls, even though I didn't want to. I ended up being this very robotic kind of figure that walked in a very robotic way and talked in a very robotic way because I didn't want to sound like a girl. I didn't want to talk like a girl. And that got me into a very dark place that I almost took my own life. So that was essentially my kind of journey. So my question is, you eventually got into conversion therapy when you were in college. But prior to that, did you go through a stage of self-monitoring? Did you go through a stage of torturing yourself? How did you deal with it? And, you, and how did you reconcile your religion at the time that rejected that with your gayness? So maybe I'll answer the last question first, and then I'll, I'll answer the first question last. Um, I didn't reconcile the two. I couldn't reconcile the two because within the evangelical imagination, emphasis, of course, on imagination, you can't be gay and you can't be a Christian at the same time. And so I that that possibility was precluded, you know, from the very beginning for me, right? Like I knew that if I were to be an evangelical, according to the definition of evangelicalism set up by evangelicals themselves, I would not be able to be a Christian. So that forced me again into the closet that forced me to do exactly what you're talking about, which is that that self-monitoring, that self-policing, right? Of, of not just conduct, but also thoughts, right? Where you are doing your best, to, like you're saying, walk a certain way, sit a certain way. You know, when a girl passes by, you're supposed to turn in your head and look, especially if there are other guys around because you want them to see you turning and looking just like they're turning and looking. And these are the these ridiculous sort of activities that we, we do because we're trying to not only convince ourselves that we're straight, we're trying to convince others that we're straight. And this is something that absolutely happened when I was younger, before I went to university. I went to Liberty University, which is the world's largest evangelical or Christian fundamentalist university. And I went through conversion therapy there. Now, this is something that was certainly, you know, uh, reinscribed. These, these teachings or these thoughts were, were reinscribed or, or, or doubled down once I got to Liberty. Why? Because I was explicitly told to do these things. Now, I think that for a lot of us queers, and you were saying, you know, this idea that like, you're like, I didn't go through conversion therapy, but there are certainly a lot of parallels to what, what you know, how you self-policed and self-monitored. I think that's absolutely right, right? I think that you have what are now, now when we talk about conversion therapy, we don't just say conversion therapy. We also say like conversion therapy or conversion practices, right? And so it's not that necessarily everyone's going to conversion therapy, but the conversion practices oftentimes obviously occur within conversion therapy context. But I think that conversion practices can be can be broadly applied beyond the, the space of conversion therapy and yours, that space with a one-on-one -on -one, quote-unquote therapist. Of course, this is not a therapist or, or in you know group settings or camp settings or whatever, because I think conversion practices are, are things that are, are, are instilled in us. These are things, these are, these are practices that are are learned and then they're they're internalized right so it's not just that you have you know when we're little we're little kids we're little you know little homos and we're you know walking around our house and we want to put you know a dress on mom or dad says no right and so 
then you realize at a young age that that's not okay. So then you not only are being monitored or disciplined by your parent, you then internalize that and you become the monitor. You become the the the, the police, you know, person, police person. Tell much I contact with police, police person, police officer, I guess, whatever it is. You know, you you become your own jailer, right? You are the ones. To, you're the one to uh, self-regulate, and so I think this is something that certainly happens to a lot of queers that we internalize. These di- these these sort of like disciplinary methods, whether it be from parents, from teachers, from you know other folks in our lives, that we we see and we learn how we are you know quote unquote supposed to act, and then we become the person who who uh, ensures that we act that way. Because if we don't, we will again receive that sort of negative reinforcement. We'll be the ones to you know hear homophobic con- comments or whatnot. So I think that you're absolutely right that this is not something that's confined to conversion therapy spaces. This, these are conversion practices that are that are, are societal and they're diffuse, right? They're throughout society and they're at different levels and in different places and different spaces. Now, this is something that, again, when I was in conversion therapy, I was taught to do these things. And I, I still think back about, think back on my time in conversion therapy. And after a lot of thought, after a lot of, you know, you know, emotional work and psychological work, when when reflecting on this, and also in some ways, academic work, part of my academic work includes this, you think about just how ridiculous conversion therapy is. And of course, I was this, you know, dumb, young evangelical kid who was like, oh, this all makes sense. And there's a way that they frame it that makes it seem like it makes sense, especially when you're in those sort of circles and you're trading in evangelical theology, thinking whatever. But looking back, you're like, oh, my word, like how silly was all of that. And, you know, part of my conversion therapy experience was I I read this manual. It was called Growth into Manhood, Resuming the Journey (laughs) by Alan Medinger. And he has this idea, along with a lot of other conversion therapists, that if you are to just act like a man, whatever that means, of course, in like heteronormative and like hegemonic understandings of masculinity and manhood, um, that you'll eventually become a man. They'll oftentimes say, no, it's not a matter of what you do that'll make you straight. It's just a matter of what you do that'll make you straight. And you're like, wait, Wait, what? Did <laughs> did you just say the exact same thing but didn't negate it? Anywho, all this to say is that they tell you to do these masculine activities. And these masculine activities, at least as, you know, uh, communicated in this manual, uh, included for me things like playing sports or talking about sports. My favorite, though, was this idea of doing carpentry. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. Like, Jeez, Louise, like how Jesus of you, right? Like, could you get any more, you know, uh, you know, uh, Jesus Christ on me? Uh, you know, ask me to do woodwork, wink, wink. But it's just like this kind of stuff that I find just like so wild looking back. But it's 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 also wild that these are actually the things that these folks promote. Or these are the ideas that they promote. These are the these are the teachings within conversion therapy, at least in my experience, and for a number of other folks, it's wild. So they frame sexuality as a matter of performativity. So any sort of sexuality is the way you perform in the world. And therefore, by repeating certain performances, that makes you whatever kind of sexuality or changes your sexuality. It's like not even based in science. There, there's, there's nothing logical about this. That's just so like insane. And I love that you talked about the heteronormative conditioning, essentially, that that we experience in the world from our parents, from the world. And do you know what I realized, Lucas, is that although, like talking about myself and my own experience, today I went to, uh, to a hospital for a hospital visit. And it's a very heteronormative space for me because it's usually like older people and therefore older generations. So immediately I went into my straight walk, whatever that is, and my straight performativity 
that I had practiced and internalized from a young age. And even though I no longer care and I no longer practice it around my friends and around spaces that I feel comfortable in, as soon as I entered a heteronormative space, immediately my conditioning was like, you know what, act this way. And I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I walking this way? Why am I looking this way? Why? Because I'm also like aware, oh, I quote unquote look gay because I have blonde hair <laughs> and I have piercings. As if that makes you gay. Again, performativity. So it's something that's so conditioned in us. And I don't know if it's even possible to completely deprogram it out of us. Do you think we can? Well, first, I think the operative phrase that you used right there is to act this way, right? The idea of an actor, one who is performing, and you, of course, use language of performance and performativity in that way, in, in that kind of uh, rhetoric. And it, But I think that's exactly it. We're, we're, we, as queers, from a very young age, are told to act. We're told to put on a persona that is not authentic. And to deconstruct that or to, as you, you, you know, as you said, de to deprogram ourselves of that way of thinking is so difficult. Now, whether or not it's possible to completely deprogram or to completely uh, reverse that, that way of thinking, I don't know. I think, you know, it, it, but I think what you're experiencing, what you experienced today in the hospital where you changed how you walked the moment you walked into that, you know, that space, it just goes to show you how powerful this is, how deep-seated and ingrained in us it is, this way of thinking and then this way of performing. Um, and I think that it's such a tragedy that these communities, and it's not just evangelical communities or, you know, uh, conservative religious communities. It's really the larger societal, you know, way of being that we are constantly forced to perform as queer people. Right, because we don't fit into these spaces, we don't align with these ways of being, and as a result, you know, sometimes we just want to blend in. Right, we just want to not be noticed. This is something that, of course, for queers, it's never going to happen. Right, where you have, you know, a casual handhold with your partner or your lover or a boyfriend or a date or whatever in public, it's never just a casual moment. It's always a political act. Right, it's always a statement. It's always, in some sense, a spectacle because you are not just blending in, you're not just able to have that comfortable, casual moment. You always have to weigh and measure who's looking, who's watching. Is there someone around here who might take offense? Is there someone around who might beat me up? Is there someone around here who might notice? And even if you have people who do notice and think, oh, isn't that great that that gay couple's holding hands? The fact that we're noticed is exactly the issue, right? We're noticed. And sometimes we just want to blend in. I'm not saying that some of us also don't want to stand out. A lot of us do. It's fun standing out in a lot of ways. But sometimes you don't want to just have to exert that emotional or psychological labor. And you just want to be yourself wherever you might be. If that's in public, then cool. If that's in private, cool. But you sometimes just want to be. You don't want to be noticed. And so I think that no matter what for us queers, whether it be hand-holding, whether it be kissing, whether it be simply just being by ourselves and living in the bodies that we live in, right? Some of us walk through these spaces and we're not noticed. Some of us do. And whether it be because of dyed hair, piercings, or the length of our shorts or whatever it might be, we are noticed. And I think that the idea of, is it, or the question of, is it possible to deprogram ourselves and to simply just be, I think that is, in some ways, I think it's impossible to answer, right? Because sometimes our safety is on the line. Sometimes our yeah. comfort's on the line. And to be honest, sometimes you don't want to have to be uncomfortable. So you change the way you walk or you, you, you move or whatever. And, you know, and that I think in some contexts, in some cases, that's completely legitimate. Now there are others who are like F the system and I'm just going to do, be myself 
always, and that's phenomenal as well. But I do think that it's hard to say, make this sort of like universal statement that we all should just be ourselves in these moments. Because again, sometimes our safety is on the line. Sometimes we yeah. get, might get punched, we might get mugged, might, we might get whatever. And that's more important in that moment than having to, again, sort of like be ourselves, which sounds terrible, but I think that this is like an actual practical consideration we have to take into uh, account. Until eventually we we reach a state where it's it's so accepted to be anything you want to be to express your sexuality essentially as you authentically are and not have that be a political statement not have that be activism in any way because you're just expressing who you are and everybody accepts it i'm hopeful that we're going to get there at some point but we still have a long way to go there now before we go into because i want to hear specifically about your conversion therapy experience before you went into conversion therapy and went to uh, to college, to the evangelical college, did you have gay sex? So before we even get there, I just want to finish one thought that I have about yes. uh, what, the last question. I should also say that it's important for us when we can to be our queer selves wherever we are, right? And I think that the more normalized, the more often that straight folks see us and are and, and are forced to recognize us, as a reality in their world, that the better. Again, uh, it almost made me sound, or maybe it was, I could have been interpreted that I was saying like, you know, we shouldn't be ourselves at all. But I, what I want to say is that I actually love those sort of disruptive moments where straight folks see us and are forced to see us. And, you know, I think oftentimes what you find, it's like the politics of looking and like people staring at you and, and gawking at you and gazing at you and having that sort of straight gaze on you and you feel it, right? Like we all know that experience of being watched as queer people. I love the idea of not allowing straight people to have that sort of power of looking and 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 in some ways trying to control us as queer people and our queer bodies in, in public and are sort of saying like, you know, aligned to how we're, how we live, aligned to how we are. I refuse to do that in as, as, as often as possible, right? Because when someone's looking at me, I stare right back. And I, I, I've always had a weird thing about people staring at me. It probably comes from being queer, but when people stare at me, I refuse to allow them to, to stare back or for, for them to, pardon me, stare, because I say, I'm going to make sure that you're going to break your eye contact with me before I break it with you. Because how dare you think that I should have to look away when I'm just simply being myself. Anyway, these are things that like, maybe these are all like mind games I play with myself. But these are things that I do think about. Um, and I can't stand when people stare in general because I think it's incredibly rude. But on top of that, and maybe that's just the Canadian coming out of me, I don't know. But what I will say is that I don't like it when, when, when folks feel the right to stare at people because they're different and not realize the impact that has on the, the observed, the person who's being watched. Um, so I'll say that. Anywho. Yeah, yeah, that is my pet peeve as well. I just wanted to add this really quick because, and I never thought about it from the perspective, from the career perspective, that it's possibly because of that. Like I get enraged when people stare at me to the point that two weeks ago, again, another hospital visit, again, a heteronormative straight space for me in my head gets me triggered. I went there for, a, for another like doctor visit. and. As soon as I walked in, this older lady just stared at me really intensely, like in my face. And usually I just stare back and I just stare them down essentially until they, like, they turn away. But I just went into her face, <laughs> glared my eyes at her and just stared there. And she's like, is, is something happening? What's happening? I'm like, 
well, you're staring at me, so I'm staring back to see where this wave will go. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> she just froze. And then I left. Like, <laughs> take that bitch. But I hate that as well. But now I now I can see that I got more triggered there because it was that space. So I felt that she was judging me. And by the way, she may not have been judging me. She may have been admiring me. But my expectation was I'm going to get bullied. I'm going to get judged. People will see me. People will reject me because I've been through so many experiences of that happening that I expect people to judge me. Like even with, with straight guys in general, like my expectation for years, because I got so bullied, my PTSD was whenever I meet a straight guy, I'm going to get bullied. So I'm immediately defensive. And it took me years to like actually have straight guy friends that made me feel comfortable and safe in being myself that I, I stopped having and I healed that PTSD. But when I want to, I want to go also back to your previous point. I don't think you were encouraging people not to be their authentic selves. I think you were encouraging people to be discerning, which is very important because there are places in the world that it's dangerous to do that in public. So of course we have to be discerning and balance our heads with our hearts and, and know where we are and to what degree we can express what we need to express or perform our gayness essentially so that we keep safe. So let's go to sex now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and off to sex. <laughs> so before you went to conversion therapy, were you having gay sex? Heck no. <laughs> I was not. I was... Well, I, I left for Liberty University. I'm from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and I went to Lynchburg, Virginia in the States. I was, I was, I had just turned 18. I left in August, my birthday's in July. And so I was 18 and I had like very few sexual experiences up until that point. And by very few, I mean like very few. <laughs> and I, you know, it wasn't until... Yeah, it wasn't until Liberty that had like other like weird, oh my gosh, like it's all like just very, they were all very bizarre. With guys or with girls? Did I ever? I think I've kissed more women since be coming out than I did when I was in the closet. No one wanted to kiss me, right? It's like, I think that a lot of women, <laughs> I think a lot of women knew I was gay. They were like, who's this? Like, I think, I don't know. I went on a few dates with gals at Liberty. I remember, you know, I can think of a few. and. On all of on, on none of them, pardon me, did we touch? Now, what I will say, I have a, I do have a funny story. I had I had a, a gal pal, and emphasis on pal, because <laughs> she was not a girl, not really a girlfriend, but there was this gal I had met at Joy Bible Camp when I was in grade 11, going into grade 12. We started talking, and it was this like sort of on-again, off-again thing until I got to Liberty. I was in my second year at Liberty, and I decided that I really wanted to pursue her as my, you know, my girlfriend. And so I was living in Lynchburg. She was living back home, and it was so easy, right, to have this like girl, quote-unquote, friend or almost girlfriend, whatever you want to call it. I don't think we even called it anything because she was my beard, right? It was like easy to like have this gal back home. Well, not back home, like a few hours away from Toronto, but in London, Ontario. And then uh, me in Virginia, I didn't, I didn't have to like be around her. I didn't have to do anything with her, but I did enjoy her company. Like she was very, very fun. And we, we had a lot of like good laughs and we, we talked on and talked and talked for hours. Um, so that was great. But again, that was all done on at the time Skype, right? We were, we were Skyping at that point. And so one uh, it was during American Thanksgiving 
I decided that I was going to go back to, to, to Ontario to, to, to surprise her because Canadian Thanksgiving happens earlier in the year. And I didn't have like, it was a week off school. So I was like, what am I going to do? Like, anyway, I, I, I decided I was going to go back to home and, and surprise her. So I go home, surprise her. And I, so we're in this restaurant and then she like, I turn around and it's me. And then she sees me and she's like, oh my gosh, you're here. And she grabs onto me and she's like holding, like hugging me. And then she's grabbing onto my arm and then holding my hand. And I'm sitting, I'm standing there thinking to myself, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, like stop touching me, stop touching me. It was like so uncomfortable, which of course should have been like, like, like alert, alert, you're gay. But again, at the time I had convinced myself that I was bisexual and I was struggling with same-sex attraction, blah, blah, blah. We can get more into that later. But I, she was like grabbing me and touching me. And I was like, I feel so uncomfortable. Like where this, this gal really wants to like touch me, but I sincerely don't want to touch her. And so in the name of Christian purity, right? Because Christians love to talk about like sexual purity. In the name of Christian purity, I said, I said, I don't think that we can like be too physical because, you know, I think we should just like hold off on that. In other words, like I'm like taking the moral or like the spiritual high, high road here. <laughs> I didn't want her like, you know, to avoid, to I just wanted to avoid temptation, whatever I framed it as. And of course she was like, yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Like, you're right. We shouldn't do this, which is just like bonkers, right? Anywho, I, I didn't have really any like, there were other, there's more to that story and it goes into weird, weird details, but I didn't want to have any sort of physical contact and I didn't therefore have any physical contact. And I, I masked it as I'm trying to remain holy. Meanwhile, it was yes. just that I, I was like wildly uncomfortable with any sort of physical contact with any gals. And how about masturbation? Did you fantasize about guys? Oh yeah. I mean, it was, uh, that was the thing within evangelicalism. It's oftentimes framed so masturbation is, is always framed as, as bad it's always framed as wrong and so I always knew that I shouldn't quote-unquote be doing this but you're a teenager right and you're you do it. a young adult and you're a human being I think it's maybe the most like <laughs> plain and simple way you can put it and so I would I, I I would talk about how I was addicted to porn I love within the evangelical community They'll often say like, oh, I'm addicted to porn. Meanwhile, the guy will look at porn like once a month. It's like, that's not what we call an addiction, my friend. Um, but I was oh, under God. the impression that, you know, my, I and all my friends were addicted to porn. And so, you know. And that was like, straight porn. Mm, no, 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 not for me. I mean, there oh. were times where you would, okay. like you were saying, you'd force yourself to fantasize about women. I would try to, like very unsuccessfully, but I would do my best. I'd give it that, old, that good old college try and it didn't work. But I think for a lot of Here's the thing for, for both straight and gay guys within evangelical circles, masturbation is, is a no-go in the sense that it's not okay, quote unquote, to do, but everyone does it right. Obviously like there, I, I knew like one guy who hadn't masturbated in like months and months and months. And I thought that was wild. And it was just before he was getting married, but I knew that before that time he was engaged that, you know, he was just like the rest of us. We yeah, were all, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were all doing, we were, you know, told we weren't supposed to do. Okay, so you did watch gay porn and masturbated to it, obviously making you feel guilty. And then when you went to college, how did you end up in conversion therapy? Was it a decision you made? Was it an encouragement? What was it? So I knew before I got to Liberty that they had a conversion therapy program. And my plan was that I was going to go to Liberty. I was going to date Christian guys for a little bit, gay Christian guys, obviously. And then near the end, I would go to conversion therapy, become straight, and then, you know, get married to a woman, any woman, and off I'd go. I had this whole big concocted plan. Best of both worlds. <laughs> That's it, right? And so I was sort of like towing that line of like sin, <laughs> not sin, and, you know, trying to be this good Christian guy. 
um, or a Christian man, you know, as I would have probably put it in the past. Uh, and so this, this was the thing that in high school, I never dated other guys. I went to Rosedale Heights School of the Arts, a very, it was a public school, a very gay school, but I never, ever even like kissed a guy in my high school or like flirted with a guy in my high school, because I thought that if I did, if I were to have done that, I would have been a bad Christian witness, right? That I wasn't evangelizing for Jesus. I wasn't giving, you know, putting a, a, a good, uh, I wasn't doing good PR for Christendom and for like Jesus and whatever and God. So that's why I remained, you know, completely away from any of my, you know, guys I knew. And I didn't want anyone to think that I didn't want anyone to think that I was gay. Meanwhile, again, like everyone obviously knew, but I was like trying my best to, to keep up appearances of a straight, pure Christian guy. Whereas when I got to Liberty, I knew that everyone there was a Christian already, or vast, vast, vast majority of folks were Christian already. So therefore, it wouldn't be bad PR because they'd be just like me. <laughs> they'd be like those gay Christian guys who are also, you know, fighting the good fight, but not really. And so I was like, I'm going to go find me a good Christian or a few Christian boys to like date and, you know, and, and, and whatnot. And then again, when the time's right at the last hour, I'll go to conversion therapy, convert to, you know, to become a straight person. And then, you know, find a gal and off I'd go. Well, that plan was like really quickly foiled <laughs> in that I was on my dorm uh, one day and one of my spiritual life directors. So at Liberty, the, the leadership, the student leadership model is that on every dorm, every floor, uh, there are two RAs, at least when I was there, it's changed the names. The names have changed now, but it's still the same principles. There are two RAs, two spiritual life directors under them, and then under them, a bunch of prayer leaders, and then under them, the rest of us plebeians who weren't spiritual enough to be on leadership. So one of my spiritual life directors comes to me and, and essentially makes a pass. And he's like, do you want to like hang out this Friday? I was like, oh my gosh, okay. So Friday, what do all you know, gay guys do? We watch Batman. We watch <laughs> Dark Knight Rising. And... I fell asleep and then I woke up and then long story short, it was like moves were made and I had this very bizarre, like very bizarre encounter with this guy. And afterwards I said to him, we were chatting and he, I could tell he was very uncomfortable and he didn't, he just wanted the conversation to end. And he said, out of nowhere, he's just like, we can't talk about this ever again. We can't do this ever again. Like, like see you later. And I was like, okay, yeah, 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 totally. And I left. And then that night I, I texted him and I was like, actually, we really do need to talk about what just happened. Like, this was very weird. And like, we need to chat. And he was like, there's nothing to chat about. Washed his hands to me. And he's like, bye-bye. I was just like devastated, right? Like I was so upset that this guy wouldn't talk to me. I used to go every night, I would go and I would cry in the parking lot by myself because I couldn't talk to anyone about this. And I couldn't talk to anyone back home about this because no one knew. And, you know, certainly wasn't, good, you know, street credit Liberty University to say that you're gay and that you hooked up with your spiritual life director. Like that's not okay. So I had no one with whom I could speak so I fast-tracked my plan, which was to go to conversion therapy. Then I fast-tracked it so that I was going to go to conversion therapy much sooner. So I reached out to the conversion therapist. Long story short, I met with him. And then we started meeting, you know, on a consistent basis throughout the entire undergrad. But I, you know, I, I wanted to go and, you know, date other Christian guys and do other, like, you know, that kind of stuff that, that you know, travel off the straight and narrow. But I didn't because... Again, I was just so overwhelmed by what had happened that I felt like I needed to talk to someone and that someone was the conversion therapist. And that's that's where I landed. 
So that was your first crush, essentially, like to a, to a, with, a, with a guy. And do you know what I'm what I'm thinking right now? Because I feel that when we spend a lot of a, a long period of time in the closet or denying our emotions and who we really are, our authentic selves, and then we suddenly find someone who accepts us as we are and says they love us or does something, performs something that shows affection or intimacy, we get hooked on that because we're so desperate and needy for it. We're so hungry for it. So we, we yearn for it. We become codependent. And then when it's taken away from us, we're devastated mm-hmm. because it's like we're so hungry for emotion. Then we find something that pretends to be emotion, but really isn't. <laughs> and we get hooked on it. And then it gets taken away. And they're like, we want our fix. And we're also like conditioned to have like one person, right? We're conditioned from a very, like from the very beginning that we're conditioned to have this idea that there's going to be one person and you can only have your uh, sort of like emotional, spiritual, physical, whatever sort of connection with that individual. And if you don't have it with that one person, then, well, you're not going to have it at all. And so I think that there's not just like this, like, I think there's this, this really strong emphasis for like monogamy. And of course, like- not that I was thinking with this guy that we were we were dating, but I thought, well, we had this connection. This could be something. And I think that when that was removed, I, you know, started, yeah, panicking because I was like, well, there goes that one guy who, yeah, like you're saying, showed affection or there was that connection that was, you know, uh, in this case, very, very short lived. But when that was taken or when he backed off, when he withdrew, I it felt like the rug, the rug was ripped out from under me, right? It was it was yeah. It was and you're you're so right. Monogamy is a construct, and if you if you look at the history of humankind, it we, didn't used to be this way. Like we used to be polyamorous, and then monogamy came as a sort of contrast a construct to replace that. And actually, I'm gonna soon have Jessica Fern on my podcast, who wrote a book called Polysecure which is about how to have consensual non-monogamous relationships and all the different forms this takes, which I find so fascinating. Okay, so you get into conversion therapy. What is conversion therapy? Personally, I have no idea what it is because it's not a thing here in Cyprus. It was never a thing in, I mean, as far as I know, it's not a huge thing in Europe. It's a big thing in the U.S., so conversion therapy has a long history, actually around the world. This is a, this is a global thing. However, conversion therapy in a lot of European countries now is not necessarily all that popular. Uh, and I think that has to do with the religious state of affairs in a lot of these countries. But you know, like different countries where it's be it's 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 uh, it's criminalized now. Thank God. But what I will say is that for the for there to be a criminalization of conversion therapy, of course, uh, indicates that there is conversion ther- therapy happening in these countries, right? There wouldn't be a law against it if the practice wasn't going on there. So for conversion therapy, what I will say also is that it's it's very different in a number of different contexts. So for me, it's not, this is not how conversion therapy always looks. You know, my experience is not representative of everyone's, but there are a lot of rhymes and, and, and parallels between my experience and others' experiences. Now, some folks have, it's it's talk therapy. And for me, it was talk therapy. Some people have like electroshock therapy. Some people have like exposure therapy um, or aversion therapy. Um, some people have a, a bunch of different, you know, uh, there's different versions of conversion therapy. And I would also say is that of course, and I think this goes without saying, but I'll say it nonetheless, conversion therapy is not therapy, right? People shouldn't have to go through therapy after going through therapy. <laughs> and for those of us who have undergone conversion therapy, a lot of us have gone through therapy since. For me, my experience was with a man by the name of Pastor Dane Emmerich. 
Dane Emmerich was initially at, at, at the university. He was there as, um, or before he was the, the in-house conversion therapist, he was like the Dean of men, which like, what in the world is that? But uh, that was his role for a long time. And then he trans, he, he transitioned into student care. Um, and of course, care in this case is like in quotation marks, he took care, quote unquote, of two things of the group of students on campus who had quote unquote porn addictions. <laughs> I just oh love gosh. it. Like he was in charge of all the sexual sin on campus. Right. And for us queers. And so he was in charge of these two groups and over his tenure at Liberty, he's seen like he worked with thousands and thousands of young guys, which is just horrifying, right? Thinking about the impact that this man has made on so many lives, particularly impressionable young lives. And so for me, when I met with him, we uh, started off the meetings with talking about my my relationship to my family. So like a very pseudo-Freudian, pseudo-scientific approach to psychoanalysis, essentially. And he was looking at, he wanted to know about my relationship to my dad and my mom, mostly, as well as my relationship to my siblings. But really what the arg- how the argument is framed within conversion therapy circles is that gay folks or queer folks, should I say, queer folks are attracted to the same sex because of defective or negative relationships with one's parents. So for 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 gay boys often or gay guys, it's oftentimes framed as a, you have a, a emotionally distant or absentee father and you have an overbearing mother. Now for me, I did have an overbearing mother. She was very overbearing. However, my dad was phenomenal and I was very close with my dad. And arguably my dad was much more involved in my life than my mom. You know, he came to all of my, you know, tournaments. He came to all of my games. He came to all of my recitals. He came to like my exhibit, like everything my dad came to. And my mom came to a lot of it too, but my dad for literally everything, my dad would be there. Um, And my dad was just phenomenal. uh, And I had a really, really strong relationship with him. However, that didn't fit conversion therapy the 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 model of thinking but what did fit was the mother um that my mother pardon me and so what dane emmerich by a conversion therapist what he would say was that my my the reason why i'm attracted to men is because i have an overbearing mother and because i have an overbearing mother i was more attached and i was a mama's boy again but i was also very close with my dad but it was because i was a mama's boy that i aligned more with the feminine i was much more feminine i liked feminine things and by the time i got to puberty I went for what I saw as opposite of me. And in this case of this binary understanding of the world of gender and sexuality, I was told that I, you know, became attracted to boys because I more so identified uh, with, with, with gals, with girls. So then because I, I wanted what was opposite of me, I, be, I became, you know, sexually hungry for that, which is opposite of me. I craved what I didn't have, which was masculinity. And that's why I became gay. So at its core, Conversion therapy, conversion therapy, or at, at core, conversion therapy will say that it's not a sexuality issue; it's a gender issue. So, for those of us who are gay men, or at the time, gay boys, we craved what was opposite of us, gender-wise, which then transmuted eventually into our sexual identity and expression. In the sense that we go for what's opposite, and if we identify with women, or if we are more feminine, we then therefore are attracted to men and desire or crave that masculinity. So, what conversion therapy tries to do is to reorient you through habituated performances or habituated actions of masculine scripts. Right. So, go play sports. Go talk about sports, go, you know, <laughs> do carpentry, whatever it might be. And that over time, if we are to just realign how we act, we will then start acting. Well, it's essentially fake it till you make it. And then once you start acting a certain way, 
you're going to then live into that persona. And that's no longer going to be a persona, but it's going to be your very person. And then you will in turn become straight. Spoiler alert, I'm still very, very gay. So yeah, so I went to this guy and we we did a lot. So we we talked about these, you know, my relationships with my um, my family. And then that served as the basis for the rest of our discussions. And so we read through that manual, Growth into Manhood. Uh, every week I had to give this inventory of what I had done that week, whether it had been a slip up, aka a sin, or a victory, times that I had overcome my temptation and, you know, given into the spirit and followed away from sin, or I walked away from sin. So you'd have to give this really embarrassing account of like what you had done. Like, had you looked at porn? Had you looked at men? Had you, what they would say, bounced your eyes? Bouncing your eyes is if I find a person attractive, a man who I find attractive, I bounce my eyes away from him. I look away. And so this was what I was supposed to do every week. I was supposed to give this inventory. We always prayed, but it was always him praying for me, which I think is pretty telling, right? That he was the one interceding on my behalf. And then we also read scripture and we talked about a bunch of different things. And sometimes he'd give me stories when he was young and whatnot. Now, I think what I, I remember one time I, I talked about this and then I had, you know, some, someone respond uh, online, something along the lines of like, well, that like they, he told you how to sit. He told you how to stand. He told you what to do. That doesn't sound very, what's the word? Uh, harmful. And what I will say in response, and I say this most times now, is that the, ins the, the insidious nature of conversion therapy doesn't always occur in the moment. Because when I went to conversion therapy, I thought that this man, Dane Emmerich, was working on my behalf. I thought that what he was doing was good, was profitable, and was going to uh, return to me, was not going to return to me void, that I was ultimately going to become either attracted to a woman or women, and that I would be able to, with his help, that I was going to be able to fight against acting on my same-sex attractions. Now, what I will say also is that in the moment, because I saw it as profitable, because, because I thought this was a good thing for me, I didn't necessarily have too much of, like the, the, the consequences weren't always in my face in the moment. Sometimes they were, right? Because this conversion therapy heightens your anxiety. We were talking before about self-monitoring and self-policing. It heightens your anxiety because you're supposed to watch how you walk, how you act, how you talk. Am I too lispy? Am my wrists too, you know, floppy, whatever. That you, there is that anxiety. So you're constantly thinking and weighing and measuring what you do and how you act. So the anxiety is certainly something that was not necessarily just, not necessarily instilled in me, but it was compounded and increased. It was augmented in my time in conversion therapy. And again, this is an enduring consequence of both being a queer person in general, but also someone who's gone through conversion therapy, that you have constant anxiety about how you're presenting. Of course, throughout the years since I've been able to sort of like work against that and think through that and feel through that. However, this is, this is certainly one of the consequences. What I'll also say is that in the time I was in conversion therapy, there was a, a large measure of guilt. Not necessarily shame, but guilt in the sense that guilt, you think about like a court of law, you think about how you're guilty for doing something and you're tried for that specific action. Not that all of your other actions are tried in the court of law, but it's just that one action and you're found either guilty or, or not guilty, whatever. So for guilt, for those of us who experience guilt, it's like we've done a discrete specific action or something that we've, yeah, whatever we've done or said that is, makes you feel guilty and you can address that individual action. Because it doesn't mean that you are a bad person. It just means that you've, you're a person who has done something bad in that specific moment. Now, shame is something that's different. Shame is something where you don't just say like, oh, I did something bad and I'm a, I'm a person who has done something bad. You then say, I'm a bad person. Like your whole being, your whole individuality, your whole sort of like the whole, the, all, the totality of you is bad. That's what shame is, right? And so 
for me in the moment, Dane always had framed Dane, the conversion therapist. He had always framed my individual transgressions or quote unquote sins or whatever, as those were bad, but I wasn't necessarily like a horrible, disgusting person because of it. Now, Christians always say that you're a horrible, disgusting person, no matter what, because we're all sinful, right? But he wasn't trying to sort of throw all that on me. He was trying to say like, Hey, I'm going to help you work through this. So what I'll say is that conversion therapy in the moment was, it, it didn't make me feel shame, like ashamed, but later on, it certainly did. Why? Because when I left Liberty, I went uh, and did my, my master's uh, at a school in Ontario, McMaster University. And when I got there, it was, of course, nothing had changed. Like I wasn't becoming attracted to women. I wasn't finding quote unquote victory over being, you know, <laughs> same sex attracted. I was still thoroughly Luke and Luke is the person who's attracted to many, AKA big old homo. And I was realizing this and I was like, geez, Louise, like what's going on? I went and met with pastor Dane for like four years. I have prayed. I have fasted. I cannot tell you how many weeks, and I'm being honest, that there were literally, it would have been months in total that I just didn't eat. Not all of, obviously at once, but there were weeks on end. Like I would do about a week of just drinking whatever I was drinking. Like I think it's so gross looking back. It would be like Powerade and milk. I think there was like the two that I used to love to drink. And so I drink like Powerade and milk for a week, not together, obviously, but I would drink this for a week and then I would go back to eating. Then I'd go back to like fasting again for another week. Right. It's so like I, if you add all the weeks up, it was literally months that I didn't eat. So it's bargaining. Like, exactly. I'm like, God, like, hey, down here, Jesus, look at me. I'm here. Like, pay attention to me. Change me. Make me attracted to women. Of course, again, Jesus remained very silent throughout this entire <laughs> process. Now, all this to say, so I said to God, I was like, God, I've prayed. I fasted. I've read your, you know, I've read scripture. I have gone and met with Pastor Dane. I have done so much. And I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and nothing is happening. Nothing is, you know, changing. And so when you have this, this, you, you've done everything you can, but nothing's changed. And you believe in a God who's perfect. Of course, God's not the problem. Who's the problem? It's you, right? Yeah. And so that guilt then turned into shame, which then turned into self-hatred. Cause I'm like, I'm the problem. I'm the issue. I'm not doing enough or anything really that's actually helping me overcome this same sex attraction me being queer and you turn on yourself. Right. And so it's not just that conversion therapy has like some immediate consequences. And for a lot of people, it does have a lot of immediate consequences for me. It certainly did, but I think the, the real power of, of, and the death dealing power of conversion therapy was the, was, was how it changed the way I thought. And then how that influenced how I, I perceived myself. Right. Yes. Over time, it's this way of thinking that 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 negates you as a queer person. It negates you as as valid and authentic, right? Because I always thought of myself as a as a heterosexual struggling with same sex attraction. I didn't even see myself as a queer. I saw my again. I knew I was, but I was able to to <laughs> have that cognitive dissonance and, and and sort of like what's the word like tunnel vision or just like a weird maybe self conception that I both knew I was queer, but I I didn't identify as queer. All this to say is that conversion therapy, the, a large part of what makes it so horrible is how it changes how you think and how that changes, again, how you perceive yourself to the point of really starting to hate yourself. Because again, you don't see God as the problem, you see yourself as the problem. Yeah, because torture is not just physical, it's also psychological, it's emotional, it's energetic, and it adds up that, that conditioning, that programming, those habits that are instilled in you it lasts and it creates that shame and then it compounds because every time you have an experience where you slip, for example, quote unquote, slip and you sin, 
then that adds up to the shame that's already there, that's not dealt with. It keeps on building up within you. And then you act, it becomes part of your shadow self. If, I, if I'm going to speak from like a psychological slash spiritual perspective, and that shadow self get, gets stronger and stronger and stronger until it explodes into another quote-unquote sin, which makes you feel even more shameful, that like gets suppressed as well. And it's a vicious circle that keeps on growing and growing and growing, and then it eats you up. And that's what you're describing as it's like you hate yourself and you, you, you go into self-loathing. So how did you get out? What was, what was it that you were like, you know what, I'm going to leave this. I'm not going to do this anymore to myself. So in part, it was because I graduated. <laughs> I was, you know, oh. I wasn't, didn't have the ability yeah. to stay there. I guess I could have done my, my master's there, I, though I didn't want to because I, my, my big plan also in, in tandem with all of this becoming straight business was that I wanted to move back to Canada because I felt that Canada was a godless nation. <laughs> and it kind of is in a lot of ways and we're thankful. But I, at the time, I certainly wasn't. And I wanted to come back and change uh, Canada for Jesus. And I knew that I, because I went to Liberty, I wasn't going to be as desirable. Well, I wanted to become a teacher. That was my big, my big yes. plan was to become a teacher. And so I knew that because I went to an American school and specifically a Christian school that when I applied to teacher's college, sorry, that's the name teacher's college. I had a few strikes against me. So I thought, you know what, let me go and do my master's in English. I was an English major. Let me go do my master's in English and then beef up my credentials essentially and then become more marketable or, or desirable when I apply to teacher's college. So I was like, I want to go to grad school. I mean, go to, uh, I applied to, to MA programs and I applied all over Ontario. I think I applied to one school in the States. I didn't know it was only one school and then the rest of Ontario. Anyway, eventually ended up going to McMaster. And it was there that I started to meet people who were serious thinkers. And not to say that I didn't have like friends in high school who were, weren't serious. like some of my friends were like, like wildly smart and still are wildly smart, but it was a very concentrated space a focus space of academic inquiry that started to rub up against my rigid worldview and theology. And I was realizing in some cases, like how limited I, I saw, like how limited my, my viewpoint of the world was. And how these people seem to have certain things figured out. Of course, a lot of them didn't have certain, a lot of other stuff figured out, but they had certain, some things figured out. And I was, you know, it was, it was with my, my, my office mate that I first sort of put into language. I knew that what, what I, what I had experienced, but I didn't, I didn't have the language to call it conversion therapy. I explained what I did. And she goes, you mean you went to through conversion therapy? And I was like, huh, I guess that is what that is. Though even then I still didn't necessarily think that that was a bad thing. But I knew that in the secular world, that conversion therapy was not something that's considered good. And so I was like, yeah, I guess that is what happened to me, huh? And then, you know, just having the ability to name things. For me, my world was so confined and circumscribed by, by Christianity that I didn't have this these possibilities of articulating parts of myself and also parts of the world that I knew were there, but I didn't necessarily tap into. And so academia, I always say academia saved my life, right? Like I started to see the world a little bit differently. And I remember I um, decided halfway through McMaster, I was like, well, I feel like my, my academic interests and my personal interests haven't necessarily been like, I haven't explored them enough. So I'm not going to go to teacher's college just yet. I'm actually going to go do another master. So I went to Vanderbilt and it was at Vandy that, and Vanderbilt, when I went there, I went and did a master's in theological studies. 
And I, Vanderbilt's like a, like maybe next to Harvard is the most like often, often left field theological sort of like school in the country. Like it's very, very, very liberal. And so I was like, I want to go think about and think through my relationship to sexuality as it relates to me being a queer, uh, you know, a, a Christian. So Vanderbilt is this really phenomenal program in like gender, sexuality and religion. And I went there to, to reconcile my faith with my sexuality and it was there that I also decided that I had a lot more academic interest to continue exploring. <laughs> and then that turned into more school after that. But all this to say is that that critical thinking and having a very focused space to do this critical thinking, i.e. academia, is really what allowed me to start thinking through my relationship to my faith and my sexuality. And, you know, from there, it was it was in my PhD that I was thinking about more so uh, like my relationship, like, do I even believe in the God that I've been told about for so long? And I realized I didn't. And that was largely to do with actually with my, my, most of my research in the past was on the Holocaust. And that's a totally different story. But all this to say is that what got me out of, of these, of these ways of thinking was being introduced to new opinions and really having, being forced to, to, to be in conversation with, with people who disagreed with me and who lived differently, who thought differently and that was in a large way, like my ticket out of evangelicalism and out of self-hating thought. <laughs> yeah, essentially education was what got you out in, in the first place because exactly. expressed like in a very intense way through academia. And I, I hear you because I, it was very similar with me as well. I'm quite masochistic as you when it comes to academic stuff. Like I, I'm doing my fifth degree right now because I'm like so obsessed with like, learning new stuff but it was through pushing myself intellectually through like my my different degrees that I started exploring and thinking differently and exploring with people who believe different things that I was and I'm like you know what let me just challenge myself and, and and consider that perspective as well and it kept opening me up more and more and more to accept more things not just about sexuality but about life in general you eventually got out what is the vision for the future why are you actually academically working around this right now and how have you reconciled or not and how was your faith shaped essentially as a result of this journey i'm in the process right now of research for what could be one could be two could be we'll see i mean if i have the time and the ability to to write these books i'll write them all um but at least a book that's looking at the relationship between these different topics and so with that being said, I'm in like, I'm in like the deep, what's the word, the weeds of research right now. And I'm not yet into the writing stage and I cannot wait to get into the writing stage. Like, you know, literally minutes before our, our podcast, I was transcribing a sermon, <laughs> which shows you how exciting my life is these days that I write what people, I have to transcribe sermons. And so uh, it's, but it's this kind of stuff that I'm fascinated by, because if we look at a historical perspective, if we, if we look from a historical perspective and we look at how uh, gender and sexuality have been treated uh, largely since the 60s, but even before that, but how it's been shaped and molded by the religious right, by the Christian right, the new Christian right, we we can see that the way that evangelicals understand sexuality and the way that uh, Christians understand sexuality is not always been the same. It's not always consistent, whether it be about homosexuality, heterosexuality, whatever. But, you know, if we're thinking about like the translation of the Bible, it wasn't until 1946 that the word homosexual was really used. And so, you know, what does that mean for queers within the church? Again, I'm not a member of the church anymore. I'm not a believer. However, I do hope that those who are 
um, are able to live comfortably in that religious tradition, if in fact that's what they choose. Again, I don't choose that for myself and I'll never choose that for myself again. But if that's what someone wants, cool, do it. I hope that my work in some ways can help illuminate their relationship to, to Christianity. And maybe that'll mean that they'll be a part of the religious tradition. Maybe that means that they'll leave the religious tradition. It doesn't matter to me. What I care yeah. about is that people are able to make those choices for themselves and to think critically. And have you chosen a different religion or a different faith or spirituality? Where are you spiritually wise? Yeah, I no, sorry, no, I've not, I've not chosen anything. And I don't yeah. I don't really feel the need either. I think that sometimes people will go from one thing to the next or trade, you know, one sort of like spiritual practice for another. And I just haven't felt the need to do that. Yeah. Um, I haven't, I don't really buy into a lot of. I don't buy into any religion or sort of spiritual practice in general. I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything either. Like it just doesn't seem, it's not desirable for me anymore. Yeah. Whereas for me, that was my way out because in that moment when I almost took my life, I, I made that choice. You know what? Fuck the church, fuck the system, fuck what people think. And I'm going to learn to love myself exactly as I am. And I didn't know how to go about loving myself. So I'm like, you know what? Christianity won't accept me. I'm sure I can find something that does. So that's when I started searching and doing my, my research. And I, I stumbled upon a Feng Shui at the time. That was the first thing I ever did. And then dream interpretation. And then I got into meditation. And then I got into Wicca. And I explored like witchcraft and, and those pagan traditions. I went into angels. Like, again, there's a Christian component there, but there are more components coming to angels as well. So I went down new ageism, essentially, and started like Hinduism and then Buddhism and like so many different things because spirituality was my thing and still is. And now... I've eventually transitioned to Greek paganism, which, which is basically the religion of the ancient Greeks. It's, it's Hellenic polytheism. That's the official term for it. And funnily enough, they accept gays, not just accept gays. There are gay priests. I'm a gay priest, openly like gay in the community as well. And it's basically how it all unfolded for me. But what the commonality here is, is we both found an outlet of something that led us down a path of acceptance. For you, it was academia. For me, it was, well, spirituality, new age spirituality, and then eventually earth-based spirituality. But I want to also touch on a, on a final point here, because what I'm noticing here is that you're very passionate about academia and doing stuff and growing, essentially intellectually and i am as well and i have been reading about how shame is expressed within gay people and with many people because we want to prove ourselves to others we become perfectionists we become overachievers we try to shore up our self-worth through achievement through collecting diplomas and i caught myself doing that in the beginning of this year, when I finally decided to study, to go to drama school, after doing a degree in geography and then business management and then psychology, the degrees that would give me the tick of society, ooh, he's acceptable, he's like, he's made it, like tick, 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 all the boxes, doesn't matter that he's gay <laughs> because he's done that and he has like three degrees or four degrees. And I'm like, you know what, fuck this, fuck this. <laughs> I don't care about this anymore. I don't care about getting that acceptance. I'm just going to be an actor because I love being on stage and that's what I love doing. And also, of course, keep writing my books and 
and doing all the other stuff that I, that I, that I love doing. Have you noticed any of those patterns within yourself? And by the way, I'm not making a blanket statement that every single person who's gay, who is, who is an overachiever, it's because of that. I'm just making the association because A, I read about it and B, it made sense for me. <laughs> and I recognize <laughs> myself in that. <laughs> Fair. So I think, I mean, I, I wonder, I, I don't, I've not really thought too, too much about this in the context of being gay. And this being an expression of needing approval or recognition from the greater society. I think for me, like what I will say is my undergrad is certainly not something to, to boast about. <laughs> I went to Liberty University. And so I think I at first I was trying to legitimize my degree, not in like a lot of people's eyes, just in like the teacher's college eyes, in the eyes of the teacher's college, because I didn't think that they would accept, like literally accept me into their program had I not done a master's. So there is that, but my other, my, like my, my degree in theology was a result of like legitimately wanting that for personal benefit as well as academic. Like I knew that I would be, you know, challenged academically. And it was when I was applying for my PhD or just before I was applying for my PhD, I said to my, my at the time supervisor, I was like, I was like, yo, I, I'm thinking about going, going on for, for a PhD. He's like, only do it if you love it. And I took a year off between applying for my PhD and my, and my, and my, and, and Vanderbilt. And so in that year, I had to really decide, do I want this? Is this something that I truly desire? And it was, and it turned out to be like a phenomenal decision. I got to work with one of like the coolest people in the world. who's like now one of my best friends, my supervisor, he's this like unbelievably wonderful mensch. He's like an 86 year old, just like superhuman. I just, oh my gosh, I could like cry talking about how much I love him, but I got to work with him. I got to work with some like really phenomenal scholars and I got to research across Europe and, and, and North America. And so it really offered me a lot of like phenomenal experiences to the point now where I'm doing what I want to do, which is write about evangelicals and, and homophobia. <laughs> like this is, this is really what I want to do. So I don't know, but maybe you're right. Maybe there is something in there. I always thought of like my overachieving because I've always been like the academically sort of like minded person, like whether it be from elementary school up to, you know, uh, doctoral work, I've always been focused on doing well. I always attributed that to being the youngest of five. Like I'm the youngest of five kids. And I just always thought that it had more to do with that, but maybe it has something to do with being gay. I don't know, but I, I think the, the beautiful thing about my journey has been that I actually love it. Like I love <laughs> academics. I yeah. love talking and thinking and reading and, and hearing people's thoughts. So maybe it's a maybe it's a combination of all of the above. Maybe it's a combination of being a youngest child, being queer, and also just loving it. I don't know. I, I've not yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's different for for every single person, and I, I think it's so admirable and exciting that you've turned the lemons of that into lemonade, pink lemonade, or rainbow lemonade, <laughs> by actually using that negative experience to turn it into something good. It's basically trauma resilience, what, what, what you're doing over here, you're taking your trauma and you're turning it into an opportunity for change, not just for you, but also for others. So you're, you're, you're doing light work. I would call it in my spiritual terminology, you're a light worker. <laughs> the the Lord's work, some yeah. might even say. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. This was such a fascinating conversation and I'm so grateful to have had you on. Thank you so much for having me, George. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any insights or a story to share, message me on Instagram at George Lizos and tell me all about it. I would love to hear from you. <laughs>